When I had come down this hill, I had seen this creature cross the road. It would have ripped my locked door from my truck, extracted me from my vehicle, and there would have been a damn thing I could have done about it. This thing, I got to notice in its eyes. Its eyes was real, real evil, real sinister looking. You know, the look it was giving me. Welcome to Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, Sasquatch Chronicles. I'm your host, Wes, along with my brother, Woody, and researcher, author, and friend, William Jeffy. Let's start the show. This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot for your first free 30-day trial and your first free downloadable book. In the summer of 1972, Hurricane Agnes blew through Maryland, unleashing a torrent of flooding that tore the Sykesville Bridge from its moorings. Did the storm let loose something monstrous as well? Sightings in the Sykesville area never started until about September of 72. Over the years, the encounters continued. And in May 1981, mill worker Lon Strickler was fishing near Sykesville when he saw some sort of hairy hominid moving in the brush. The woods were swarming with police. State policeman uh, told me to get back in my car and leave. And I explained to him, well, I made the call. He said, you got to leave. Have you seen it? It's massive. It was, it, was, it was huge. You cannot be here. When I was told to leave, I was frustrated. Something was going on. Something I didn't know about. With the first Sykesville monster encounter, just one police officer responded. Almost ten years later, Strickler's encounter triggered a manhunt. The authorities were on red alert. And it wasn't just local police. By all appearances, the response had turned to the feds. I came back about an hour later, and the whole area was cordoned off. There were people going through the woods, dogs going through the woods. There were helicopters, there were sheriff's cars, state police, black SUVs. The place was swarmed with federal agents. 
That doesn't make any sense to me. So, I was told that there had been some evidence found, but I was told I had to leave. So that's what I did. I went, I left and went home. The town was in sort of a chaos. There was a curfew put on. You couldn't go out at night. People were scared here. Exactly which authorities were in Sykesville, or what they may have recovered, has never been documented. The fact that the officials got there as quickly as they did tells me that they were tracking it and they were ready for it. I do believe the government realizes that these creatures are real. They just do not want the public to say much or know much about it. The government's reluctance to comment has stoked the community's suspicion. It's very creepy to me and very disconcerting that there are no records of the Sykesville monster in our own police department. Yeah, you know, somebody sent me the link to a site that he has up. I can't remember if he was actually going to write a book about it or if it was just a story posted on there, but it was pretty interesting. And, you know, it makes me think about some different conversations I've had with different people. One individual, I don't know, I I, I don't really, I don't have his name. He, you know, he sent it under a, his uh, email name, but um, at first he wanted to come on the show and tell his story, and he still may want to convey his story or have us tell it. Uh, at least that's what he said last time he sent me an email. But then he was stopped at one point. He said that he was told, and he didn't specify what government agency, but he was told point blank, and, and, and I got the gist that he was a government employee himself, that he could not tell it, and he was very cryptic. I asked him, you know, if he could give me any specifics, and, and all he said was, uh, and I think I sent it to you, um, it was just a very short, they tell you that, uh, you know, we bring you in, we feed you well, we take care of you, and, and something along those lines. Basically, you're not allowed to ever talk about this particular subject. You know, I, I slowly get these pieces of information in where there's more and more people willing to at least share that much information. Uh, our friend up north, and I haven't heard from him for a little while, but he also said that there were cover-ups going on above his level, you know, working for the state. So... There are things going on. I think things like the Sykesville monster must be, there has to be more going on. Maybe there was, you know, maybe there were people killed in that area 10 years prior, you know, to Lon's situation there. And that's the reason they react that way. I've got another friend in Nevada who was a deputy sheriff for 10 years in there. And he said, you know, that was a subject that they all knew about. There was a special number that they were supposed to call if there was a Bigfoot report. And none of them were ever supposed to talk about it. Yeah, regarding that email, I thought that email was kind of creepy. All of a sudden, he just stopped. He basically said, hey, yeah, wasn't talk that about something? This. Yeah, that I mean, was. I mean, it was very serious. Yeah, it was real serious. And you could see the his attitude change after, I mean, when he sent that, it was like, hey, I can't talk about this. I got to go. Complete change. Yeah, it was. It was a real complete change. Yeah, I think something's going on with the Sykesville monster. I think you're right. There had to been, there's more to that story, because he's just calling in a Bigfoot report. There's a ton of these things that go on these accounts, and they, nobody gets involved. So it had, there had to have been some other circumstances go on to get that kind of reaction out of, you know, who, whatever agencies are handling that. Yeah, it makes you wonder. Definitely makes you wonder on, on what's going on there. You know, we should try and get him on the show. 
I had no idea. I'd never, I'd, I'd, honestly, I've never heard that story before. You know, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna send him an email in a little while and ask him if he'll come on. You know, I put stuff up on on Facebook, and he was one of the people that always liked to help me promote stuff. So I think he I think he'll be friendly toward us. What did you think of that gibber that I played last week? That was interesting. I mean, that's one of those. It's it's I, I have heard it. chatter, but not quite like that. I have it, and then I have it slowed down at fifty percent. I'll go ahead and play this audio and tell me what you think, Will. reminds you like Star Wars, doesn't it? You know, I, I was just, well, I listened to that before and there was so much going on and then I, I, I've thought about it since then trying to divide the different noises. I mean, first yeah. of all, it sounds like there's either dogs or and or coyotes in the background. Is that right? Yeah, it sounds like it. They're just going off. And then you hear this kind of weird, almost, uh, I'd say it's almost an elect- electronic noise or I don't know how to describe that. I was trying to think if I'd heard any sort of other you know, primates, monkeys making noises like that, I suppose. Uh, and then towards the end of it, there's kind of a, it makes me think of a bird at first, but maybe it's a whistle. I've heard Sasquatches chattering, and, they, and it's very chimp-like chatter, but it was very different than this, so I, I really don't know what to make of this. Yeah, it's hard to, uh, I'll tell you what, I have it slowed down at 50%. Okay.
It sounds a little bit more disturbing, slowed down at 50%. It does, and it does sound very, um, there was an animal, very animal sound to that. Yeah. I wouldn't call it speech of any kind. And, and of course, firstly, I don't think Sasquatches make speech anyway, but uh, I don't think they have the capability of doing that. But, of course, we have our other type. I don't know what kind of a name we'll attach to that one yet, but we'll just call it the other species that uh, Kunbo and Bear were talking about, what they've experienced. I, you know, it'd be interesting, I, just mentioning those two guys, it'd be interesting to run that by them and see if they've heard anything like that or what their opinion is. When you hear it at the normal rate, it almost sounds like someone's playing a recording or someone's some sort of audio right. has been tweaked. Right, that's what I thought. That's why I thought it sounded electronic Right. or electronically and when generated. And when you slow it down, it actually sounds almost more authentic, I think. Right, I agree. But, yeah, I thought I'd get your opinion on that, see what you thought. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, and again, slowed down, you can really, it could be a vocalization of some type. Speed it up to its normal speed, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. No, I tend to agree with you on that. Do you think we ought to play uh, I Got a Minute 34 with uh, <laughs> Mike Patterson's new uh, new audio file? Do you think we ought to even bother with that? What is it a, 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 a vocalization or something? Or? He He's the uh, Sasquatch Ontario guy. We've played him before. What he says in this next audio is he basically says that uh, they enter different dimensions, and then he shows footprints, and there's dirt on the oh, footprint. Lord. He said... He says it came from another dimension. <laughs> oh, my God. Should we player. even bother? Huh? No, I don't think so. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's leave the flute players to their own dimensions. Yeah, I, I thought you'd find it hilarious. So, so he finds these footprints. He talks about how they come out of a different dimension, and that dirt's actually from another dimension. <laughs> That's like the I guy, I remember I mentioned him years ago back in the 90s when uh, Krantz and, and a whole bunch of people were in Portland, Oregon, to do a, a town hall show. And I refused to go to it because I, I wasn't going to be around a bunch of those fools. But a couple of my friends went and sat in the audience on my behalf. And there was a guy there. And, God, I can't, I'd have to look to see what his name was. But we called him the button pusher because every time somebody talked to this guy, he, that was his whole thing about these things, going from jumping from one dimension to the other. And he, he'd say, well, I, I don't know how they do it. And he starts pushing his chest. He says, maybe they got a button here somewhere they push to jump to different dimensions. And he says they're dinosaur food in another dimension, so they jump into our dimension to escape being eaten by a T-Rex or something. And, of course, you can imagine, you know, my mouth open, eyes rolling in the back of my head and all this stuff when I heard this crap. <laughs> yeah. I have Brian Forrester talking about the elongated skulls. And okay. what he was saying in there, he kind of alludes to the fact to, he kind of alludes a little bit to the fact that they might be Sasquatch and not... Alien, you've seen the elongated skulls, right? Yeah, right. So there's these skulls in, uh, gosh, I can't remember where it's, where it's at. It's in all over um, the world, actually, mostly South America lately, but they're actually found all over the place. Yeah, it's, it, this place is in South America, and they they have these elongated skulls, but the, the problem with these elongated skulls, they're larger than the normal human skull. Oh, they're really? about twice as, as big as a normal human skull. The eye sockets on them are twice as big. He does a pretty good job. He's describing they're doing something with the DNA, and he yeah. kind of explains why it's so hard to get DNA from them. But uh, and it made me think of our our dig coming up. That I wonder why it's so hard to get DNA from these skulls. Nothing in the gem bank matched the DNA from these skulls. And he oh, was talking about these these skulls that you can wrap like a baby's head, and you can cause that deformity. Right. But 
you can't make you can't add volume to a skull. You can't actually make a skull bigger. You can deform right, a skull. It'll thin out. The bone will be half the thickness. Right. Exactly. It's kind of interesting. It's about nine minutes long, but it's kind of interesting. And he talks about them having reddish brownish hair. And oh, in South, see, that's exactly what we're talking about. Now in South America, there is a, yet a third species. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There you go. Tell me what you think of this. I was thinking we should have this guy on the show. Well, what's kind of intriguing is if you look on the internet uh, to any photo, you know, website, and if you put in something like alien skull or human hybrid skull, quite often the Paracas skulls show up uh, predominantly because they are so uh, large in size. Um, some of them are very natural looking, and also there are so many of them that have been found, which is quite intriguing. So would you say that some of the features that these skulls have rule out the possibility of cranial deformation, you know, processes like head flattening or head binding, which are known to have happened in other cases of elongated skulls? Well, that is the curious point in that uh, cranial deformation is known to have occurred in many different parts of the world, uh, most um, prominently about 2,000 years ago. Um, from the Middle East, uh, even Melanesia, Central America. But um, because I've been intimately engaged with the elongated skulls of Paracas and the Paracas culture in general that died out 2,000 years ago, I've had the opportunity to look uh, in person at numerous of the skulls as well as hundreds which are in collections all around the world. Mm -hmm. And and some of them, uh, I would say, possibly between five and ten percent of them do not show obvious signs of cradle boarding or other forms of cranial deformation, which generally tends to create flat surfaces, either in the forehead or the back of the head. Some of these literally look like they are natural in appearance. And so I've also heard that some of the other features include increased volume and increased weight compared to other skulls. Um, is that not something that could also happen as a result of head flattening where, you know, through the process of binding the, the size actually increases or is, is that absolutely not possible? Well, from the doctors that I've spoken to, they said that you can alter the shape of the skull, but you can't increase the size of the skull because what the skull the skull is genetically predetermined to have a certain volume, and uh, and so it's much like um, in terms of you know the an analogy I have is pottery, where you have a piece of greenware which is a pot which is not quite um, dried yet, you can alter its shape, but you can't change the volume of it. It's uh, some people have stated that the uh, the reason why the Paracas um, could have had denser skulls or um, you know be heavier, etc., is the result of their diet or uh, you know malnutrition or whatever. And the thing is that they had an incredible diet of seafood as well as terrestrial plants. They probably actually ate better than most of us uh, do today. Mm -hmm. And so the study of these skulls is becoming a lot more interesting now that we have the technology for extracting DNA and analyzing DNA. Um, before any testing was undertaken, did you have any theories yourself about what might be found? Well, I didn't want to 
conjecture anything. Um, of course, I've had many different ideas, but I've been waiting for actual DNA analysis, um, and it, that has taken an incredibly long time, mainly due to lack of funding and also finding a geneticist who, A, is open to uh, studying this, uh, doing it at a fraction of the normal cost that it would cost commercially. Um, and we, importantly, we wanted to do this independently because going through any governmental or private foundation or whatever would probably result in the uh, results either being deleted or altered or being kept for purposes other than my intent. And my intent simply is to find the truth as to who these people were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so can you explain a bit about the testing process that actually took place or has taken place so far? Well, it's a very complex process, um, and most people don't realize this because they think, well, DNA testing is quite simple now. I can go and have my, you know, a blood uh, sample extracted and be told within a few days, you know, all of my genetic ancestry. But what you have to take into account is the last of the Paracas died 2,000 years ago. And so you're talking about 2,000 years of the degeneration of the material. Uh, the late Lloyd Pye, who I was um, acquainted with, you know, very personally and professionally um, because of his fascination with this, um, his analogy is that um, to take a, a sample and analyze it uh, from somebody who's living is the equivalent of, of looking at or uh, studying um, a crystal bowl because it's, you know, it's complicated and intact. Uh, and then he said the equivalent of ancient DNA is taking that crystal bowl and throwing it on a concrete floor because it becomes shattered into tiny little segments. So it's only the most recent, sophisticated, um, extremely expensive uh, DNA analyzing equipment that can take all of those tiny segments and put them back together. So it's been very, you know, very difficult to find someone who would uh, pursue that. We actually have two different geneticists at work, but it happened to be this one who's had samples for more than, uh, more than two years who has given me this initial result, which uh, completely shocked him. And so the thing most people really want to know is what exactly was found in that initial result? Yeah, and basically what, uh, you know, what I can say is that um, he speculates that there are segments of the DNA of the Paracas which do not match anything in GenBank, which is the um, genetic database uh, located in the United States that contains all known genetic um, DNA information. So he said there are segments which don't seem to be any haplotype of a human that we know of, um, also not, not related to Neanderthal or any other uh, human-like uh, being that has been studied so far. Quite, quite incredible, really. But now you have emphasized that this is phase one or stage one of the testing. Um, what then is the next stage after this one? Is it possible that this result is, is um, contaminated or it's, it's not accurate and that further stages may reveal something different? Uh, it is possible. However, you know, this, uh, this person who uh, lives in the United States and has a doctorate, he does a lot of uh, contract work with the U.S. government. So clearly the, the government 
wouldn't choose someone who was flaky or a sensationalist. Um, he's taken a lot of time. It's been more than two years for him to give us the initial result. Um, of one sample so far, but he, he does have samples from three different skulls from Paracas. And so what I'm hoping is that this, and the reason that why I released it, uh, this information, is to try to generate interest from the public so that we can do a fundraiser in order to be able to uh, study the other two skulls as well as other samples from the three um, skulls themselves so that we can replicate the tests um, as many times as possible to see whether or not this is an anomaly or whether it's something which is um, truly mind-blowing, <laughs> I guess is the term. Yeah, exactly. And is it possible, the fact that it doesn't match anything in the gene bank, could it be that this is just a one-of-a-kind mutation, a mutation that hasn't been seen before and is just unique to that particular race of people? Uh, it, it could be, but again, the, the whole study is so is so new that, um, and the Paracas are, are very um, mysterious people. Nobody has really studied them for about 70 years. Uh, the people who study them now study their textiles, but the whole idea of the the fact that their their uh, skulls seem to be of a different shape um, has been dismissed in general as simply be, uh, being cranial deformation. But in fact, nobody knows where the Paracas people came from. They lived on the coast of Peru, and uh, through my studies, um, I believe that there's a certain percentage of their um, ancestry that comes from another part of the world because they also, amongst the royalty, seem to have had reddish-brown hair, which is not a Native American characteristic, and they were reasonably tall. Some well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, of course, they, it's, a, it's, a, it's a leap to say that they were some sort of a um, relic hominid, but there are so many gaps in the in the hominid record. There could be a half a dozen or more different species in those gaps. So, and there is a large relic hominid in South America that's not the Sasquatch, not the other type we have here. So, uh, it's possible that could be one of these different species. I don't know about you know in terms of them having a social structure and everything. Maybe the skulls belong to those people. Maybe they were something else. I mean. There's some, a lot of unknowns in that, so it's pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, and if you see pictures of them compared to a normal skull, I mean, they're twice the size of a normal skull, a normal person's skull. Yes, they so don't really fit the human parameters. No, they don't fit the human parameters. Yeah, among all those relic hominids, we don't know what level of intelligence or, or socialization there was among them. I mean, we deal with the ones that are here today that are very wild and animalistic, but we don't know what the others were like. Yeah. Did you uh, <laughs> do you read the story about the lady that claims to have fed a baby Sasquatch? I didn't. I didn't. I know about it, but I didn't read it yet. Yeah. It, well, it's not really worth reading. But she uh, <laughs> claims to have found one. She found it in the woods, brought it in, raised it for I think she said like a year or two. Taught it about hunters and fed it uh, goat milk, tomatoes. I forget what all she says. I sent some of that stuff to Eric, you know, to run by him because he's working on his PhD in psychology, and and I always, he always gets a big laugh about, you know, about the, the psych different psychosis with people out there. Yeah. And I'm really glad that he's working on that particular degree. I mean, I, I did my own, re, you know, work with at WSU in psychology, but mine was more neurobiology. His is actually, you know, all the different psychosis and, and mental issues and things. And he says, you know, a lot of these these people are just 
they're nuts. <laughs> yeah. You know, for lack of a better term, that they're just crazy. And, you know, they, they, they get attention by any means possible. Yeah, she's a 70-year-old woman. She uh, They asked her if she had any proof, and she didn't have any. She's like, oh, you rascals, I didn't tell you the story to provide you proof. I was just, these are people and blah, blah, blah. And she didn't want to be interviewed anymore and didn't want to come out anymore with any more information. And then she came out like a week ago and oh, said, no. well, here's some diaries that I care, or some diaries I had when I was taking care of the Sasquatch. And right. she has like stick, stick figures drawn of this little baby Sasquatch. And oh, boy. I was just like, sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone here at Bigfoot Hotspot Radio would like to thank Audible.com. Audible.com is the internet-leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 different titles to choose from. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. Janet on the show tonight. Uh, we're going to discuss her uh, encounters this evening. Janet, let's start off by, um, I always like to talk to witnesses first about just getting a little background on, you know, what their experience or knowledge was on the subject of Bigfoot uh, before they had an encounter or any sort of uh, incident. Yeah, so can you mm-hmm. tell me what knowledge you had prior to the events that we're going to talk about? I was a little girl when I saw the Patterson-Giblin film for the first time. That was during my spring break. I was in fifth grade. And I remember it very vividly because I was sitting in front of the television with uh, my coloring book and coloring, and uh, I saw this terrifying (laughs) image of uh, the Sasquatch. And uh, that disturbed me to the point that I think I slept with my parents for about two weeks after that. I was that afraid. And then it wasn't long after that that uh, the movie... The Legend of Boggy Creek became popular, and we saw that at the drive-in. And that was like maybe a month after I'd seen the Patterson-Gimlin film on television. And uh, I was, I'm a native Arkansan, so that swept the state. And my classmates and I discussed what we had seen. We were all afraid. Um, a lot of my classmates uh, and their fathers went hunting in the woods. And we lived in the woods, too, so you can imagine the impact that had. And I think that I slept with my parents again for, like, another two weeks yeah, after two that. Weeks and just over the years, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and just over the years, I've I've had a passive interest in it. I never imagined ever seeing one or having an experience that was just mo- mostly for people in California or maybe in Falk, Arkansas. That was not going to be my experience ever. But I never imagined in a million years, what we have experienced. And uh, I'm a believer, big time. So let's fast forward then. What was the first experience you had with these creatures? My first sighting was actually about the year 2000. I was coming home from a ball game. I had taken my daughter and her friend to ball practice in their ball game. And uh, it was night in the summertime, and we were driving along the highway, and I saw something that was large, black and hairy, walking across the highway. And uh, I didn't tell them what I had seen, and I can't say that that was a Sasquatch, but I know it wasn't a deer, and I know it wasn't a bear, because we don't have bears here. And uh, I told my husband about it when I got home, that it was a large, black, hairy thing walking on two legs across the highway. And I, I never mentioned it to anyone else 
after that, but I did ask a couple of neighbors. I had a neighbor at the time who lived in Alaska and told him what I had seen, and he told me about his experiences of living in Alaska, and he also lived in California and the Northwest for a period of time. So uh, I found an outlet for that at least, but I kept it mainly to myself. So after that, did you see or hear anything, you know, around the area of of that individual from that encounter, or? No, uh, just over the years we've had some unusual things that have happened around the house, just mainly what sounded like rocks being thrown at our house. I, I would tell my husband that I heard something that sounded like a rock hammering against the house, you know, just thrown. Mm-hmm. And uh, But he thought, well, maybe that was a bird, maybe it was a bat, but it happened so frequently during the summer that I did make a note of it, but... I I didn't know what to think of it. I didn't think that we had a neighbor playing a joke on us or anybody caring enough to come way out here in the rural part of our community to harass us like that. I don't know what I thought. I just uh, let it go. When you heard the thud, was it just a single thud or was it a a series of thuds or how can you describe that noise? It It was a loud rocket sound, just an explosion. It would hit the awning or the chimney and uh, at the side of the house, too. So it was just a usually... You could hear, our bedroom was over underneath the chimney, and uh, whenever it would hit, you could still hear the kind of the the vibration, Uh the after sound of it down here. So was it just like a single thud, say, in a day, or I'm trying to get... At night. Maybe at night. At night. Okay. Yeah, and it was usually after I had been up with one of the kids or taking a cat out of the house, or bringing a cat in the house. It was after some activity, and I was definitely awake when it happened. Oh, I see. And what was the frequency of these things? Did it span a number of weeks or months? or? It was most notable in the summertime when we had our bedroom windows open. So this is sort um, of a, like a thing that happened year after year? or? I wouldn't say year after year, but it was enough for me to remember it, but I had no explanation for it. I didn't think anyone was going to bother us. Sasquatch was definitely not on my mind at the time. Right, right. How did the insulins accelerate? Did they? Did you see anything else? Did these things keep going like this? Was there something other incidents that occurred that made you think of Sasquatch? No, it was just um, when I had my my own personal sighting in uh, the early weeks of September of 2012 at our local state park. Now, you told me you found tracks. Can you tell us about yes. that? Yeah, the tracks we found Christmas Eve 2012. My husband and one of our daughters wanted to take a walk around the lake at the local park. We live about a mile from the state park. Uh, you can see the tree line from our house, and we've raised our family at this park with birthday parties and uh, you know walks along the trail, things like that. So my husband and daughter... Um, went Christmas Eve. It was about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I joked with them, because I hadn't been back to the park since September 2012. I joked with them, uh, well, if you see Bigfoot, let me know. And they were gone maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, and uh, (laughs) they came running up the driveway, and uh, they said, we've seen very large footprints all over the lake. So I grabbed my purse and got in the car, and we went. We parked at the dam, And we walked halfway around the trail, and we saw these enormous footprints that were at least 17, 18 inches long. 
very wide strides. Um, what we saw in the snow, we had had a blizzard like two weeks before, and the sun had been out off and on and had melted some of the snow. And it looked, it reminded me of a public pool in the summertime. You know, when you see people leaving the pool and going in the pool, you see the footprints all around the pool. Right. That's exactly what it looked like around the lake. And we uh, went back on Christmas Day and we took photos. We took more photos. We had taken some on Christmas Eve. We didn't stay too long because it was getting dark and my youngest daughter was starting to cry. She was 14 at the time and it wasn't fun for her anymore to keep following these tracks. And I marked the tracks with some red Christmas ribbon, the bigger ones, the more prominent ones, so we'd be able to come back and take pictures or see if there was a change from the time that we were there over the span of like 12 to 24 hours. And I should mention that some of those pictures are actually, uh, the tracks are very good. Yes. Well, these <laughs> these prints were very good. It was exhilarating to see something like this. It was a, it was a high that I never thought that I could ever experience. I thought this happened for people in Bluff Creek, California, not for something like me, someone like me and my family. But everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a believer, and uh, they're here. We've seen the prints. We, we've got evidence. We took a lot of pictures. I've heard we have had a, golly, we had a time out here after our site prints that there was a lot of rock clacking out here. It sounded like a Morse code. Mm-hmm. And we also heard that in the woods at the park. My husband and daughter got that on tape, but it was deleted by mistake. But uh, she said, my daughter said, that it did sound like a type of Morse code. Have you heard and any vocalizations like, or anything? Or? Yes, we did. Uh, our last vocals were a week ago, excuse me, February 15th. My Can husband and I were me? at... Yes. Uh, we were at a Valentine's dinner at the small church across from the park, and I was the first one to leave. He was still inside. Walked to the car, and and I heard the most, just the depth and the breadth of those howls was absolutely filling the woods. It went over the treetops. My husband came out, and I said, shh, listen. And um, something with a good set of lungs made those sounds. And we, we just stood there in total awe of what we heard. We just couldn't believe what we heard. It was magnificent. Anything, anything you could compare to any other type of animal or, or sort of noise? No. Uh, there, in, that, in the woods, there are deer, raccoons, possums. Uh, the park ranger has smallish dogs, you know, the terrier types. Right. But I don't think a terrier is going to sound like that. No, I, I wouldn't think so. <laughs> <laughs> when you first Ask. found the tracks... Yes. What kind of went through your mind when you when you saw them? And the reason why I asked that is I remember when Woody and I first found a track. I mean, we sat and looked at it. I mean, it's hard to, uh, you know, you look at it and you're trying to think of what the heck is this, you know. What, it's hard is somebody to out here walking. Yeah, it's very mm-hmm. It's tough to take in. But what was kind of going through your mind when you, when you saw those tracks? Euphoria, exhilaration, a thrill that I never could have imagined. Like I said, this happens for other people. It happens for people in California or on um, the television programs. It's not something that happened for me. Even if I did have a sighting a few months before, I never imagined seeing footprints. I never imagined seeing, having this kind of experience or seeing a Sasquatch or hearing vocals ever again. But uh, it was exhilarating. And uh, we just followed and we followed. And then after a while, um, it started to get scary because it was getting dark. The next day when we went, it was Christmas Day, 
I got, uh, we had followed those trails, that, that trail again, we followed the tracks up to the, the hill where there's a shelter. And I followed the tracks down the hill, and because I've got arthritis down, my, down in my knees and in my ankles, I decided that I wasn't going to walk back up the hill, but I would just simply walk around the lake to get back to the car. So I walked down uh, across the uh, parking lot of the shelter, and like I said, the sun had been out and it had melted the snow. I didn't think I was going to see any more tracks. I went back on the trail. I've, I found the trail, started again, and there were tracks. So this time there were only two tracks. One pair of prints was larger than the other. Between both tracks was, were a set of deer tracks. They were following the deer. And I followed the tracks along the trail, got to a point where there was the hill in the peninsular area from where I had seen the Sasquatch by the shelter. They walked straight up the hill. That's a very difficult hill to walk up in the best of times. But with snow and ice, uh, whatever it was that walked up the hill walked up with ease. It didn't slip and slide like I did. I practically crawled up the hill on my hands and knees, getting up there to uh, get across and find the trail again. Again, uh, like I said, the, the sun had been out and melted some of the snow on the hill, and I knew where the trail was, so I started on the trail again, and, and the trail was shaded by the trees, and there were the tracks again, the two pairs of feet, one pair of feet larger than the other, and the deer tracks. And I followed that around, followed it around the lake. Well, we sure appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your your experiences with us. It's kind of hard to share your experiences with people. I mean, I know firsthand that when you've seen something or when you when you heard something, it's it's really hard to. You kind of have to pick and choose who you tell. And but we sure appreciate you sharing it with 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 us with our audience. And thanks for listening too. We really do yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. Yes. Well, thank you so much for listening to my story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everyone here at Bigfoot Hotspot Radio would like to thank Audible.com. Audible.com is the internet-leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 different titles to choose from. To download a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot. been listening uh, about a week ago we announced that this July we're planning to do an expedition and this is based on if we can get the support we need to be able to do this we have our sponsor audible.com if we can get a minimum we need a minimum of 5,000 people to sign up for the free trial on that and it's it's 100% free it doesn't cost anything you sign up and then you know if you choose to keep it it's a great site. If not, you cancel it. doesn't cost anything. If you already have an Audible account, as many of our listeners have uh, emailed us, Wes set up a PayPal account at uh, Bigfoot Hotspot Radio, and you can donate uh, as much as you like. Uh, for every $10, we put your name in the hat, and, and you get an extra chance to be drawn. Uh, so what we're going to do, and, and as you 
as you donate money to PayPal, your name comes up in there, so we know exactly, you know, who's donated, and that's how we're going to to be able to put a name in the hat. So, yeah, and the link for Audible, it's audibletrial.com forward slash Bigfoot Hotspot is the link you want to use, so that we actually get credit for that. And if you want to send funds through PayPal, it's Bigfoot Hotspot Radio at gmail.com. When you go to PayPal, you just need an email address and then the amount you want to send. But it's BigfootHotspotRadio at gmail.com. We've actually gotten a lot of response from from people, both from Audible and the donations. Uh, I'd really like to take 10, 10, maybe 15 with us up there. Uh, yeah, it and, would be great to do that. We have some great places to go to. You'll definitely get to see some uh, evidence in the field. But we, but we really need a lot of support. We need a lot of people to come out and support us on this. Yeah, I'm excited. A lot of the the main question a lot of people are asking. Yeah, a lot of people who who don't live in the United States have asked if they aren't obviously in the United States, can they still participate? I know people from Australia, people from England, people from Scotland, and the answer is yes, you can. Uh, I would love to, have to take a couple of people who aren't from the United States out to the Pacific Northwest. I think that would be pretty cool. As far as the drawing goes, I'd like to do like a live drawing on a Google Hangout or something like that where it's audio yeah. and video. We're doing like a live drawing uh, and and pulling names, like a live video feed of us doing the drawing and, and pulling names. And that's kind of the route I'm thinking about going with regard to the drawing. I know we're going to draw in May so that it gives people time before we go in July. Right. But I'm excited. I'm excited to go. I can't wait to uh can't wait to go up there and take people up there and take people up to up, up the mountain and show them around and go up to mountain. Oh, you're right. Helen. It would be great to have a, uh, some people from overseas come in and, you know, some of that, uh, you know, a much wider audience. And that's something, too, I wanted to mention that for our listeners out there, we'd really like to grow our audience. So if there's anybody, friends, family, neighbors, you know, coworkers, whoever you think might be interested in listening to the show, by all means, you know, pass the word around. Yeah, we get a lot of love from people in uh, – the UK and Australia and a lot of places that aren't the United States. So appreciate yeah, all those people this week. Yeah, it's really cool. Thanks everyone for joining us tonight. Have a good night. Bye.